Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 52. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome David Haber. He is the CEO and co-founder of Bond Street. They are a relatively new small business lender, and I wanted to get David on the show to talk a bit about his company, to discuss what makes them different in what is becoming a more and more crowded market, shall we say, for as far as small business lenders go. And I wanted to talk about you know, their approach to underwriting. They've, they've hired a very senior person to sort of manage their underwriting and also to get, you know, to get his views on the Small Business Borrower's Bill of Rights and the whole self-regulation thing. We cover all that and more in this podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we kick it off with uh, giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and what you did uh, before you started Bond Street and sort of some of the things that you did that led you to decide to, to go out on and start this new company. Yeah, absolutely. So we had started Bond Street about two years ago. But prior to that, I had spent almost three years working in venture capital. And I was at a firm called Spark Capital, um, initially up in Boston. And then I helped open up the New York office with one of the partners, Mo Koifman, and I was essentially like the only junior person on the team. So, you know, my job was to go run around and find interesting new companies to invest in and bring them back to the partners to ultimately lead, lead the deals. And one of the areas that I was particularly passionate about that, you know, many of the other partners really got excited about, Santo, Politi, and Mo, and others included, was sort of how technology was going to help reshape financial services. So I ended up going, you know, fairly deep in the space um, and help them invest in, you know, probably six or seven companies, not just in lending, but across sort of the broader fintech stack, you know, so help Santo, you know, lead the seed around in Orchard and, you know, Mo in, in, in seeding Plaid and Andrew and Quantopian and um, a number of others that, that we did while I was there. And I think what's exciting is they've gone on now, and, you know, and, and made, really made it a focus and, you know, they've invested in Wealthfront and Affirm and IEX and, Funbox and a whole bunch of others within the ecosystem. So it was a cool sort of perch to kind of get a, a really interesting sense of what was happening in this sort of emergent ecosystem. And, you know, for me, what was, I think, mo- more fascinating was, you know, I'd spend most of my time talking to technology companies, but would often run across fast-growing physical products businesses or services companies who you know, we're also looking to raise financing, didn't really fit within our mandate or, or made sense yet for venture capital, but, you know, who were doing real revenue, were profitable, were growing, and either struggling to raise bank financing, which I didn't fully understand at the time, or, you know, were very bankable, but kept telling me how painful and antiquated the process was. And so at the time, you know, I just started calling anybody that would chat with me. <laughs> and eventually it was, you know, the heads of small business lending at, you know, most of the major banks and a bunch of community and regional banks across the country. And as you're well aware, learned about a lot of the structural issues that uh, existed in the market, which make mm-hmm. it very difficult for them, you know, to serve small business as well. You know, not least of which was certainly regulation, but also really a lack of technology and process to make these loans cost effective. Okay. So you basically decided that the, the small businesses you know, 
weren't getting access to funding. But obviously, as a VC, you were totally focused on on equity investments. But sounds yep. like uh, even like you know, you, you sort of your research drove you to the lending side of of the equation. So when you decided, because I think we we first spoke, I think when you were still at Spark Capital and. Uh, can't believe it's been over two years, but yeah. <laughs> anyway. So I guess what there's a big there's a big leap between being a VC and looking at companies, then you know getting out there and and you know doing it all, bootstrapping it yourself. So what yeah. um, what was sort of the tipping point for you in that in that process? Yeah, you know, I've always thought of myself more as an entrepreneur than an investor. And I had started a bunch of little companies as a kid, nothing super serious, but, you know, it taught me at at an early age that it was possible to sort of create something from scratch. You know, and I found myself, even when I was at Spark, you know, often meeting really interesting entrepreneurs building incredible companies. And I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, well, shit, I just want to go leave and build this thing with you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, when I finally found something that I was really passionate about myself, it was, it was a pretty obvious, it was a pretty obvious choice. You know, another big catalyst was, you know, my partner Peyton. And, you know, I like to say jokingly that I collect people. (laughs) Peyton was always sort of at the top of my list of of people I wanted to start a company with. And I had met him in, in 2009. He had graduated from Harvard in 04. And I, I had met him when I first moved to the city after, after graduation. And, he was at DE Shaw at the time. He had spent about yeah, five or six years there working directly for David Shaw, sort of his like personal CTO, essentially. So, you know, writing software for the fund, but also on like technical and research projects, they would come up with together. And so, you know, even after our first meeting, we just started kind of brainstorming. This is even before I went to Spark and, you know, stayed in touch along the way. And around the time that I joined Spark, he went to go run engineering at a company called Venmo. Um, which was a mobile payments business. And they ended up getting sold twice. They got bought by a company called Braintree and then PayPal bought both companies at the end of 2013. And so when that transaction happened, you know, it was a, it was really a catalyst for us to go leave and start this business. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so then you started up like, can you just describe, I guess, exactly what kind of borrowers, what kind of company Bond Street is and who you're going after? Sure. Yeah, so we are exclusively a, a small business lender. Um, so George's loan size is, um, I think, today around $175,000, you know, one to three-year durations, but they've certainly skewed, you know, towards three years. And so these are businesses looking to invest in some sort of growth opportunity that they see ahead of them, whether that's, you know, opening a new location, hiring additional employees, you know, buying a piece of equipment, in some cases refinancing, you know, an existing uh, you know, merchant cash advance reputation in a, in a number of in- industries. So certainly a lot of, you know, creative and professional services companies. You know, our first was, our first customer was a company called Gin Lane, which is probably New York's top digital agency. So they had built, you know, Warby Parker's website, Harry's, Sweetgreen, Saturday Surf, a bunch of other companies. And, you know, it was actually through Emmett, the, their founder's experience that I sort of initially had learned about sort of the challenges that that these interesting companies were facing, you know, in raising bank financing because, you know, here was a business that was profitable, growing, doing millions of dollars a year in revenue, but still having a tough time, you know, getting bank financing. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've worked with them multiple times and yeah, it's been really, it's been an interesting, you know, mix. So are you, are you like, 
how, how many states are you operating in right now? Are you just in New York or you got multiple states? Yeah, so today we, we can lend in actually 46 states oh, across right. the country. Yeah. So I think the only four states that we can't lend in are North and South Dakota, Vermont, and Nevada. Okay. And so are you, do you have licenses in those states? Are you partnering with a, with a, uh, a bank? How are, you, how are you actually originating? Yeah, we've, we've gotten licenses in states where we've needed them. And then, you know, because our, our loans are fairly low rates, you know, commercial lending is treated fairly differently than, than mm-hmm. consumer. And so we fit comfortably within most existing state usury caps. I think that's, you know, one of the main reasons why you've seen certainly companies like Lending Club and others partner with, you know, folks like WebBank because the state caps on a consumer level are, are much, much lower, you know, or existent at all in, in, in most states across the country. Right. Whereas it's, it's treated a little bit differently on the small business side. Okay. So I'm curious about how you differentiate yourself because you've, you know, you're, you're in sort of a wheelhouse that is, you know, funding circle, obviously sure. are in the, playing in the same lending club, foundation, you know, several others uh, I could name as well. But so how, what is different about Bond Street compared to those other companies? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, we're, we are all in some ways in the business of selling money. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and our dollars are just as green as, as anybody else, <laughs> any of those you, li- you listed or, you know, Chase or Wells Fargo and, you know, or others. And right. so, you know, while today we can certainly compete on rate and on speed, you know, a question that we often ask ourselves is, you know, the future is one where capital is available online. Mm-hmm. You know, I think speed eventually will become table stakes. And so if that's true, we need to be providing, you know, much more than just the economics of each transaction, right? It's not, it's not just about the unit economics of the loan itself. It's about all the other value we can provide. And so we really think of ourselves and aspire to be more than just a lender, you know, but to be sort of every customer's, you know, financial advocate. And I think you'll see us continue, and we're already working on this, build, you know, more and more interesting technology, you know, around offering value even before somebody's been thinking about applying. I mean, the sort of interesting thing about, you know, most of these platforms is that they're only useful when somebody's immediately ready to apply. Right. However, I think there's a huge opportunity to build a much earlier relationship with your customer. You know, we collect so much data across the network of companies we work with, you know, why shouldn't somebody be able to sync their accounts and learn something interesting about their business? You know, and ultimately we can, you know, through that information, anticipate future financing needs. And that's true of even existing customers and something we already do today is because we've written, you know, these software integrations into products like QuickBooks, into the bureaus, into the IRS, into deposit accounts, we're not just underwriting once, we're actually continuing to monitor, you know, these financials on, a, on an ongoing basis. And so we've, ha- we've seen a lot of interesting repeat business. And I think the future, in my opinion, is one that's not necessarily delineated between you know, simply term loans and lines of credit, I think it's one where, you know, it's really about capital being available on demand mm-hmm. where, you know, somebody applies once and we're not underwriting them once we're underwriting them, you know, every day, every second. And that pool of capital grows with them over time and the rate adjusts accordingly as well, you know, and so that in the future, it's not another application. It's a push notification that says, you know, Hey, look, we, we're, we see this sort of accounts receivable gap, you know, you should draw down on this capital to avoid, 
you know, working capital issue, you know, for that, for that quarter, or, you know, you're stocking up, we see that you're stocking up on inventory, you know, every November for the holiday season, you know, you've already been pre-approved for, you know, this additional capital, you know, for that time period. So, you know, we're not quite there yet, but I think we're, we're, we're well on our way to building that. And so I'd say, you know, you know, at a high level, like really our differentiation comes through, you know, the team that we built and the technology that we're, that we're building, you know, and it's sort of a unique mix of folks at the company. I mean, the first, the first hire that Peyton and I made, you know, was a guy named Jerry Weiss. And it was sort of funny because the Orchard founders were working out of my office at Spark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Peyton and I realized very early on in the company that we were going to live and die by the quality of loans we made. And neither of us had ever, you know, didn't come from a credit or risk background. And so I was spending a lot of time, you know, running up and down Amex and City and Chase talking to senior risk folks and actually kept bringing them to Angela and David, you know, Matt's co-founders in Orchard who had spent their careers in risk. And they're basically like, yeah, these guys are good. You should really go talk to Jerry. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, well, who's Jerry? And they're like, well, you know, he was our boss's boss at City. He was the head of risk for small business lending, you know, nationwide. And so they actually had facilitated the initial introduction and we pulled him out of the bank um, as our first hire, which, you know, is a funny juxtaposition, a funny conversation when you're asking the head of risk at a big bank who had spent 30 years running big risk teams to join, you know, two people at a, you know, tiny company with, we didn't even have our payroll set up. <laughs> I, I remember. I remember reading about that. That was that was quite uh, quite the coup for you guys. I'm sure. Yeah. He's and uh, I think. Yeah, he's he's sort of had a bit of a culture shock, I imagine. Yeah, and actually, it's been it's been much less of one than I thought. You know, I, I was initially quite skeptical, but you know, he dove right in, and I think it's been one of the best decisions we've made as a company. And you know, he's a great example of of bringing in somebody with a, a different perspective. And then you know, we have folks you know, recently who joined like, you know, Peter Vidani, who is the, you know, fifth employee at Tumblr and led, you know, all product design as their creative director. And so these are two people I think who would never have worked with each other, I think in any other business, (laughs) frankly. Um, But it's ultimately that sort of diversity that creates, that is sort of magic and I think allows us to build, you know, interesting and differentiated products for our customers. Right, right. So let's just, let's, Talk. Um, I, I know you're you're not Jerry, but I do want to talk about your underwriting process and sure. you know get a sense of you know how you're doing that. What it, what are you doing that you know may be different to others? And you know what like how much automation are you bringing in? Just so can you just give us a little bit of a sense of how you're underwriting the borrowers that come through? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so as I sort of described earlier, one of the big catalysts for for Peyton and I to go leave and build Bond Street was sort of the shift that we saw happening in, in the financial software space where, you know, companies like Intuit with 5 million QuickBooks users, but also, you know, Zero and Stripe and Harvest and Braintree and Expensify and TradeShift, all these companies that had really valuable data on the financial health of small businesses were suddenly opening up and launching APIs. And so really the, the genesis was, you know, wow, we could collect a lot of this data directly and actually make, create a much better customer experience. And so that's essentially the product or, or loan application that we've built is one that, you know, integrates with products like QuickBooks, you know, with, you know, Experian and Equifax, with the IRS, who, you know, around the time that we started, ex, you know, started accepting e-signature so we could collect a, a digital copy of somebody's tax filings. Mm-hmm. And then also integrations into, I think we have coverage for five out of the 7,000 banks in the country, you know, for deposit data. 
And whether that's through, you know, Intuit's customer accounts API or, you know, I'd invested in, in Plaid when I was at Spark, which is building a competitor to them in Yodli, you know, we can quickly get a holistic view into the financial health of a company. And I think what was really interesting to me to learn uh, and frankly surprising after talking to Jerry was that at most banks, and this is true at you know, many of the largest ones in the country, for loans under, certainly under 250 and many under $500,000, the decision, the ultimate credit decision was based almost entirely off consumer and business credit score. And so they would have somebody sign a 4506T tax form, but they wouldn't actually pull tax filings. Hmm. And because they didn't have a uh, cost-effective way to actually analyze financials, in my opinion, they were getting a pretty two-dimensional view of a customer, right? It's like, you know, if you and I both had 750 FICOs, you know, you made $500,000 a year, I made $50,000 a year, like, you're going to lend very differently to the two of us. Um, and that's essentially, I think, the blind spot that most of these large banks had. And so I think one of the exciting things, certainly for Jerry and joining the company, was that we're actually giving him and, and, and the team and all of the algorithms that we built more data you know, on a $50,000 credit than he often had on a million-dollar loan at a bank. So to me, it's not just about speed, but it's about actually making smarter decisions. Right. So, so, so then, so you, like, it sounds like a lot of this stuff then is automated. When someone goes in and fills out an application, you can fire up the APIs of these different companies and, and pull in stuff in a you know, in an automated fashion. But I presume then, I mean, given that you know, you're still a pretty young company, you're you're manually are you, are you talking to everyone on the phone? I mean, how does it work? Yeah, I mean, there's still review. Jerry's still reviewing, you know, and, and not just him now. Our credit team is reviewing every application that we uh, that we ultimately approve. But, you know, we have built a lot of automation into the process. You know, some of it, we ended up getting about a million historical small business records when we started and did a lot of analysis on the, essentially, the probability of default relative to somebody's personal and business credit scores but I think the more interesting piece is actually automating the financial statement analysis, which, uh, in my opinion, I haven't seen this at most other places. No, I haven't seen anybody else really automate to any significant degree. And this is something where, which is, I think, much harder from a technical perspective. But, you know, automatically calculating things like debt service coverage and comparing that to, you know, what we see in somebody's, you know, tax filings and the cash flows that we see in their deposit accounts, um, and how to sort of the combination of those things determine, you know, not just who you should approve, but how much you should lend and at what rate. Mm -hmm. But we do, I mean, we do speak to every single customer on the phone and it's not, it's really mostly, certainly some of it is helpful from a risk perspective, but primarily it's to learn about their experience with, you know, with, with our product and our site and, you know, to ask questions about, you know, how they came to us and what, and ways in which we can improve. And so we built a pretty thorough sort of feedback loop from those conversations, you know, continuously trying to improve the customer experience. So I think we'll, you know, continue to do that for a long time. And I think at a high level, my, my philosophy on building technology is that ultimately it should, it should enable us to afford, you know, the human touch. You know, we should be able to instantly approve a $500,000 loan, you know, to be directly deposited in somebody's bank account, but also, you know, be able to provide the level of customer service somebody might come to expect, you know, from many of their other favorite brands. Right, right. Okay, okay, that's fair enough. So, so what about volume? I mean, how many, like, how many loans are you doing a month? What's, what's sort of, you know, what did you do in October? Can you share that information? 
Yeah, we haven't. I don't know that we shared like specific volume numbers, but it's grown a lot certainly since we've we've you know closed this Jeffrey's relationship. Um, mm-hmm. We are confidently on path to do 100 million by the end of 2016, and hopefully, I mean, we have sort of a number of of interesting partnerships that really could accelerate that. But uh, yeah, we've been pleasantly surprised about the volume. Okay, and so I know one of those partnerships I read fairly recently was um, uh, with WeWork, the big, you know, the co-working space. Can you, uh, like, I guess, describe what the partnership is and, and what, it, what it means for you guys? Yeah, so WeWork was a, you know, a brand and a business that we had admired for a long time. You know, they've, you know, have, I think, close to 60 locations worldwide. I think 50 of those are 45 of those in the United States. Um, you know, 35,000 members, but growing incredibly quickly. I think they estimate to be at like 100,000 in a couple of years. But so, you know, we, there was a lot of alignment in terms of, I think, our brand values and, and sort of the, the community of customers that we were ultimately going to be, you know, addressing. And so what we've done is we're now sort of the, essentially the lender of record into, you know, all WeWork locations and companies. And, you know, we've, you know, in addition to offering a discount to their community, we've also you know, hosted events at various locations across the country, have provided a bunch of sort of educational materials to help you know, biz- these businesses understand sort of the, the trade-offs and how to think about financing options. You know, they've built co-branded landing pages that they promote you know, within their site. You know, our logo is on you know, a number of their, I think it's like on every TV screen and every WeWork location. You know, they've sent an email out to every member in the community. So they've really leaned pretty heavily into the relationship. And it's been a, a really nice sort of symbiotic one. I mean, we funded our first loan within, you know, within 48 hours of them announcing the partnership, <laughs> you know, from application to money in the person's bank account. And, and it was actually a digital agency based in uh, their, one of their LA offices. And I think what was interesting about that was that they were really using the capital to staff up and, what that ultimately meant was that they could afford more desks within WeWork. And so it's sort of an interesting way, you know, for them not only to, you know, benefit their community and help these, you know, these companies grow, but it's also, you know, driving incremental revenue for them, um, which just makes it, you know, a much more interesting partnership, I think, for the long term. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I want to switch to the, the other side of the marketplace or, or the other side of the equation, shall we say, because uh, I think, I believe right now, I guess you could clarify. Uh, my understanding is you are a, you, you just you have a, a credit line. You're, you're a balance sheet lender. Can you just talk about the who is funding these loans and uh, and what your plans are for the future there? Yeah, so we're not we're not actually a balance sheet lender. We we are structured more as a marketplace, but we have today at least one you know large institutional buyer of our loans, which is Jefferies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a great partnership. I mean, they've as you know been very active in the space you know, with companies like Avant and Affirm and, and others. Yeah, and it's been a it's been a good one. You know, we've we've definitely had other interest from institutional investors to participate in. So I imagine, you know, over time we'll certainly um, you know expand the pool of, of uh, institutional capital that we have, you know, on the platform. You so know. so your plan is long term then to have like a true marketplace where, you know, you'll have you know, you know, multiple investors, you know, doing, you know, each with their own kind of criteria, I guess, and, and, and deciding, you know, is that like in sort of an open, an open way? I mean, what, what is your, what are your plans there? 
I think it's it's a little bit TBD. I mean, the way the way that this one had worked was they'd done a lot of diligence initially to sort of understand our, our uh, underwriting model, and then that sort of diligence defined the parameters essentially of a box, and you know they'd committed to buying loans that fit within that box. And so whether it's sort of more dynamically on a per loan basis or it's uh, essentially commitments, and you know, and, and different investors may have different sort of risk parameters. Want you know some want less risky loans and have a lower return parameter or, you know, more risky loans and want a higher yielding one, you know, that's more likely. I mean, ultimately I think about, you know, I don't know, I think it's really a business model question much more than, you know, a a customer one. I don't know that the customer really cares about whether it's, you know, one institutional investor or, or 10 institutional investors or, you know, 300 individuals, so long as the customer experience is a good one. And so that's mm-hmm. what we've really tried to focus on while also providing, you know, very meaningful return to our institutional partners. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So, so would you say, are you open to talking to new investors today or are you, are you pretty much all set there? Yeah. I mean, Jeffries definitely has a, a big appetite for the yeah. loans that were originating, <laughs> but, you know, I think they've, they've also been willing to chat with, you know, partners who wanted to, you know, participate. And, you know, as every startup knows, you're always in market, <laughs> you know, fundraising, you know, because we will, you know, if things continue to go as we expect them to, we will definitely be, you know, raising additional debt capital, you know, in the near future. Right. Okay. So um, before I let you go, I want to talk about the Small Business Borrowers Bill of Rights. This is something that, uh, has you know been around now for a few months about yeah. you know, the building transparency and all that sort of thing. I mean, can you? I didn't see your name on the on the website, sure. um, but I, so I wanted to get your perspective on that and uh, and how your company views it. Yeah, honestly, we should. I'm I'm good friends with with Braden, um, you know, who was sort of the primary drafter of yep. the of the document, you know, with Jared at, at Fundera, and I think it was actually a great a very positive step in the industry. You know, I, I, I completely agree with everything that's written. And I think we even go above and beyond with what's there. You know, we always show exactly, you know, what our interest is, what our APR is. You know, we even give a full amortization schedule to customers. Like we pride ourselves in being incredibly transparent to our businesses so that they can, you know, fairly and accurately compare our products with other companies and other lenders in the space. We should sign it. I, I actually have no reason not to. It's uh, it, it's just we've had a bunch of other stuff to do. Right. It's just you haven't got around um, to it yet. So it's not like you you, yeah. you don't you don't embrace it. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, in fact, I think I would even probably push it further. Like I, I think it's uh, and if you you know we we submitted our you know a treasury RFI response and you know that was one of the things that I actually had called for in in that document was basically. Uh, you know, encouraging people to not obfuscate the true cost of the loans that people get into. And, you know, some like to talk about, you know, factor rates. And when you actually amortize the actual true cost, it's, you know, it's triple digit interest in some cases. And so I'm not against, I I, I actually, I'm not against higher interest rate lenders. Like I think Mm -hmm. they serve an important function in the marketplace. But I think as with any sort of financial transaction, people have a, you know, almost a moral obligation to understand what they're getting themselves into. Um, And I think that's especially true for small business owners, you know, many of whom are incredibly passionate about their product or their service, but they're not finance people, right? nor should they be. 
And, you know, we certainly believe, again, that, you know, in, in being more than just their lender, being their financial advocate and helping them make, you know, the best and most informed decision, you know, for their business. So, yeah, and that, and that, and some, there's a lot of work to be done in the space for sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and for some people doing a a merchant cash advance or a short term high interest loan actually makes sense and they can do that. that, That's, you know, for a seasonal business or for something like a big, a big spike, um, big customer comes in or whatever. And, and, you know, the, the, the total cost of the loan is, is, negligible to the profit they're going to make by taking that that loan on so yeah. i think it, it i think it does make sense for some people but that that said we've seen like pretty negative examples of you know cases where companies were you know in dire straits and yet whether it was through a broker relationship or directly you know other lenders mostly mcas piling on to their existing debt burden yeah yeah. Uh, and ultimately crippling these businesses and putting them into bankruptcy because, you know, the actual debt service payments were, you know, unavoidable. And, and so you kind of have to ask yourself if, if people are willing to do that, A, are they actually underwriting the customer? Or B, do they even care if the business survives so long as they get their capital? Right. And that's, I think, you know, there's been some bad actors. There's been lots of stories written about, you know, there's been, you know, there are certainly bad actors in, in the space. And I think in that situation, yeah, I, 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 it's got to be every transaction, in my opinion, has to be a win-win. If it's, if it's not a win-win, then you don't have a sustainable business. And eventually either regulation is going to catch up with you or, you know, you're going to be found out. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's like my hope for the industry is that, you know, people sort of self-regulate and it becomes sort of, again, it, it just behooves everybody to not put anybody in a bad situation where they can't pay back. And so, you know, let's, you know, let's continue to sort of elevate the conversation together. Right, right. Okay. Well, on that note, we will, we will sign off. I, I very much appreciate you coming on the show, David. Thank you so much, Peter. Always a pleasure. Okay. See ya. Talk to you. I just wanted to touch on that self-regulation piece that David just mentioned. I think it's, it's critically important. You know, I know there are several associations or trade groups that have been discussed. Nothing has been formalized yet, but we are certainly, I think it's beyond time. I think we, we need an association that is uh, inclusive and strong that we could, so we can have a voice in Washington and, you know, provide kind of some kind of, you know, guidelines for best practices in the industry. And, you know, I feel like this is, in the next six months, I'll be very surprised if we don't have something like this in place. And I think that will be a good thing for this industry. On that note, I will sign off. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, I would love to get your feedback. Um, please go to iTunes or Stitcher, however you're listening to this show, and uh, give us a feedback. I read every all the feedback that we receive, and uh, it's how I you know I can improve and make uh, make the show better. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.